0: This is C SPAN's Afterwards Podcast. This week, former U.S. Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund discusses his book, Courage Under Fire. He provides his personal account of the events leading up to the January 6, 2021 riot at the Capitol. He's interviewed by New York Times congressional reporter Luke Broadwater.
1: Chief Sund, thanks for being with us. Uh, you're the author of a new book, Courage Under Fire. Um, I-, I read the book. I think it's very well-written, and it's an important contribution to what's a growing sort of volumes of, of evidence about what happened on January 6th, 2021. Um, so thanks for being here. Um, before we get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background, how you, where you come from, how you got into law enforcement, and how you ended up the chief of the Capitol Police on January
0: 6th? Absolutely, and thank you very much for having me here today. Um, I actually come from Southern California. Uh, I come from a military family. Uh, my dad was a B-52 pilot and got transferred out uh, to Washington, D.C. Uh, when I was the young age of probably about seven and a half and grew up out in northern Virginia. Uh, I had a close family friend from California that uh, ended up going into law enforcement. She came out to visit one day and had married a sergeant with the uh, Fremont Police Department. And I looked at him and said, I, I think I want to know what I want to do uh, and started following my uh, my dream at that point. And I joined the Metropolitan Police Department where I was there for 25 and a half years Rose up through the ranks to the commander of their special Operation Division, which is uh, their elite. it's you know the bomb squad, the helicopter, the harbor, the presidential escorts, the major major events. Um, the elite division comes with a lot of responsibility. So there I, I did a lot of the major events in Washington DC, got to know all the partner agencies, Capitol Police, Secret Service, Park Police, everybody. Uh, and then in September of two, let's say I'm sorry September of 2016, I was out at IECP September, October, and ran into some of the sergeant-at-arms uh, that were out there, and they told me they were doing a search for the assistant chief of police for Capitol Police and asked if i apply. I applied in January 7th. Uh, I started 2017, started as their assistant chief.
1: I, and you, um, you write in the book that your perspective to recounting these events is apolitical. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've heard a lot from Democrats about January 6th. Mm-hmm. We've heard a lot from Republicans why did you think it was important to emphasize that point right away for the readers? I think it's important for a number
0: of reasons. One, as a as a police chief or a police officer, I think it's critical that we we do our roles, we do our jobs in a very apolitical fashion. You know, it doesn't matter who we're dealing with. It doesn't matter if we're on a traffic stop, a nine-one call. It doesn't matter who that person is. We should treat them all the same. For me, as a chief of police, especially up here on Capitol Hill, um, I try to run things as best apolitical as I could and to tell a story. That isn't shaded one way or another by, polit- by politics, I think, is important because, you know, January 6th was a devastating day, a devastating day for my officers, a devastating day for America on the Hill. And my concern is it could happen again. And how are we going to learn if we look at it through a, a, a political lens? we got to look at it, you know, apolitically. We need to learn um, from somebody that was there so we can actually prevent this from happening again in the future. So I don't think we're getting anywhere by shading it one political side or another Uh, We had to look at the facts, and that's kind of how I wrote the book. Mm -hmm.
1: Why did you want to write a book? I mean, there's been a lot of uh, police involved in that day. You know, you obviously have a unique perspective, but writing a book is hard. It takes a lot of effort. Why why did you want to do it?
0: Um, I I initially didn't. Um, I initially did not want to write a book. I initially wanted to uh, get out there, and people don't realize, right after January 6, um, I'm not one to usually talk to the media much. I knew the information that was getting out wasn't correct about what happened that day, uh, so I went to the media to try and get the truth out. Uh, I kept asking, are they going to have hearings? I finally heard they were going to have hearings. The Senate was going to have the first set of hearings, but they weren't going to call me. So I went and I actually I actually went to the, the committee, one of the committees, and, and pleaded to actually testify. And I was the only one there in person. So I did everything I could coming up to starting the book to get the truth out. And I was seeing it wasn't getting out. And you're right, writing a book is tough. I tell people, especially this one, such a personal story, such a, a devastating story. It was hard as hell to write, and I wish I never had to write it. Um, And it took a lot of time uh, to write, but I think there's a lot of facts, a lot of information in there America needs to know about what happened that day.
1: You mentioned uh, in the the back room that originally the book was more than 800 pages, and you've cut it down substantially. What was the editing process like? How how did you decide what to cut out?
0: Um, I I had some very good um, editors that I had a chance to work with. You know, as as I'm writing, I'm writing about everything. I'm I'm trying to gather all the information. I'm putting it in there. So there's a lot of um, personal stories, a lot of different things about what happened. You know, that day, following up, going in to testify, things like that. they were probably whittled down uh, as it went through the process from you know the 700 pages down to the 500, down to the, where it is now, almost 400 pages. It's still it's still substantial. The thing is, it's it's fact based. You know, it's got lots of references. It's got numerous citations. Um, so it's not just my interpretation. I'm trying to provide as much facts in there as possible,
1: and that's what retained in there. Mm-hmm. Now, one theme that I noticed as I was reading through the book is how much law enforcement on Capitol Hill is affected by politics. Um, you write at one point that about dysfunction in the Capitol, and you use the acronym snafu. Um, and you said that sort of. Uh, there were different points you brought up. Things like members of Congress complaining about officers looking menacing when they would have their riot gear mm-hmm. on. Tell me a little about what it was like to uh, operate in a situation where you have 535 different bosses and politics. I mean, politics affects everything on the Hill. Can you expand a little bit for for the listeners you're, about that? You're
0: really in the heart. You, you when you say it affects everything, you're in the heart of politics because everyone thinks you know. Hey, he's the chief of police. He's at the top of the pyramid. That's a little bit, take that per- pyramid, turn upside down. I have three politically appointed people that oversee me as the Capitol Police Board. And then I have four uh, committees that oversee the, the Capitol Police Board and myself. And those are, are all politically appointed uh, committees. And then you have the leadership. So it's all about politics. It's all about optics, which is sad because they want the Capitol grounds to look a certain way. Um, you know, whether you agree there should be a fence, there shouldn't be a fence, That's all has to do with politics and the access to the people's house, the access to the Capitol grounds. Uh, and I, I do think in a perfect world, people should have access. You know, right now we're not working in a perfect world. Um, but politics should not affect security. And that's what's happening up there. Too many people that are reporting to a political entity have their hands in security. And that, that isn't how you should run security.
1: So that's sort of the backdrop as we head into January 6th. I mean, you've got this very politi- politicized environment affecting law enforcement. Um then on the day of January 6th, I'd like you to run through your personal story. There's a whole chapter in the book uh, about the minute-by-minute minute, uh, events that happened on January 6th and how your officers were outnumbered 58 to one that day.
0: Yeah, 58 to one. Um, that is uh, probably that's a lengthy chapter. I believe it's about 88 pages, um, and uh, I've heard it described a couple different ways, but it's like it's like a roller coaster ride. So. I started off that day with, based on the intelligence I had, expecting another event very similar to the first two MAGA events. Um, we had I deployed every resource I had available uh, to my uh, out on the, the Capitol grounds. Came into work, driving into work as I would. You know, I always talked to my partner agencies, made a couple calls to Park Police, Metropolitan Police, just to check in, see how things were going, and, and drove up, parked, and went up into the command center, and you know, began the day, looking, you know, thinking, okay, everything's still looking the same, everything's going to be fine. Knew we were going to have big crowds, and we were watching the crowds uh, handle the, ra- you know, ra- the crowds walking around the uh, Capitol and down at the ellipse, and they were sizable. Uh, but it was nothing that we hadn't seen before. And then we started dealing with things like we had a suspicious package over by the Supreme Court that turned out to be nothing, just turned out to be a guy with a, uh, a, a trailer, a little handcart. Um, but then we ran into the pipe bombs over at the RNC. That's when I started getting really concerned because a couple of times we had groups of proud boys walking by, we were watching them. But when the pipe bomb hit, And then at 1253, we got hit on our west front uh, by the Maryland Avenue and Pennsylvania Avenue um, walkways. Uh, I knew things had changed. I felt like a a bolt of electricity went through my body. And seeing how those people were fighting with the officers, uh, everything changed at that point. And, you know, thank God for the Metropolitan Police Department. Uh, My contacts there, we immediately got some resources in. uh, But we just saw the fighting continue, and it was just a progression. People think it was a quick breach of the Capitol. Think about it. 12.53 they started fighting my officers, and it wasn't until 2.11, 2. 2.12 that they put that shield through one of the windows of the, uh, of the Capitol. 80 minutes. My, my men and women in uniform fought uh, their behinds off to, uh, to protect the Capitol, protect the members of Congress. Uh, and that was harsh, harsh battling. That was battling. Um, and to watch that happening and then have to go through you know, the, the multiple requests for assistance, then have to fight to you know, get the 71-minute the delay trying to get the uh, National Guard to be approved, uh, and then have to go and fight with the Pentagon. To now, once it's approved, to finally get them to deploy, and then wait three and a half hours for them to deploy. Uh, I felt like I was in a dream. I couldn't believe some of the things that I was being faced with was happening. Um, especially as I just continued to watch, you know, the officers pull in and uh, pile in, and, and the fighting that was occurring, and hearing about the injuries. Um, it was uh, it was devastating. It was it was absolutely devastating. Um, but it progressed. With you know me heading, heading over to the cap uh, the capital you know getting the calls from the vice president, uh, which you know are write about in the book, uh, and this is all outlined you know minute by minute in that January sixth um, uh, chapter, and it 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 was tough. And then to take it up through when we finally felt like right around five o'clock, I felt like the tide was turning. We were beginning to get control, uh, and getting people pushed out of the Capitol, starting to make a limited number of arrests. I felt like the tide was turning. And then to be able to inform leadership. That we can get them back into the um, their chambers by uh, seven thirty, I felt we had finally we had finally accomplished something. But I knew what I'd seen that day um, was going to change history forever.
1: What was the worst thing you remember?
0: I think just the the all out the the brutality of the fighting. I was you know I've testified to this a couple of times. It was the worst attack on law enforcement I've seen in my career. Just the brutality and just to think that I was seeing people beaten with American flags and. In uh, some of the some of the fighting that was going on, it was clear that some people in that crowd had come prepared. Some people had come with with climbing gear, had coordinated an attack. Um,
1: but just to see that that happen to to my men and women was devastating to me. Yeah, I mean there were dozens and dozens of officers injured that day. Obviously, some people lost their lives later. Uh, two members of the force, Brian Stegnick and Officer Liebingood, yep. um, died afterwards. Um, what are your thoughts on on Sick Nick and Leaving Good. Uh, how were were you close with either of them and, and uh and I, I knew that I knew them both. I was uh, much closer with uh with Leaving Good. Leaving mm-hmm. Good actually
0: worked out the gym that I went to out in uh, out in Fairfax and every once in a while uh, we we'd, we'd meet and talk. Uh, we were both into cars, so we'd always share car stories. He you know, he, he raced rally races and I I did a different type of racing. Uh, so we'd always share car stories. So I was absolutely when I was floored. Uh, when I heard that, I was devastated when I heard about Sicknick. You know, at the same time, I was dealing with um, with Brian uh, Brian's illness. And again, on the late on the 6th, we had heard that he wasn't doing well. Um, and, and when he passed away on the 7th, um, I had just been dealing with the stuff with uh, the spirit going on TV and calling for my resignation. So I just felt like, you know, everything was just happening at once. And then to deal with Howard leaving goods uh, suicide just two days later on Saturday the 9th. Uh, it was very, very tough, uh, but it was tough on the department. You know, the thing thing with me is this is this is a story. And "Courage Under Fire" is a title that really applies to the officers. The you know how they were out there, they were fighting, and they were being vilified in in the media right after right after this. They were being vilified by members of their own the, the Congress that they swore to protect. Um, to see what they're going through and how it affected them was tough. And I write I write a very um, telling story about, you know, telling a portion where I go down and have to address a roll call after Good having hearing of his suicide. It was it was one of the toughest things I've ever had to do in my life. Were you scared on January 6th? Was I scared? Yes. I was scared as hell. I was scared as hell. I um, I saw what was happening, and I saw that as they were progressing, and I, I even listened in the book that, you know, I said a prayer not for them to get into that Capitol because... Every officer that's down there, every officer that wears the Capitol Police badge and the patch, has sworn an oath to protect that building. We consider it the icon. There's a saying that, hey, if the dome's still standing, everything's okay. Um, that day was the one day I was like, wow, you know, the dome's really being affected. Um, as the group got closer and closer, I and the crowd got getting bigger and bigger. I mean, you got to understand, at one time we had 10,000 protesters on uh, the West Front. 10,000. Imagine what that looks like. And I'm looking at it from the command center where we have cameras that are facing down from on top of the group, it was, it was incredible to watch that. And I, I try in my writing to, to relay what, what I was experiencing, but also what the officers in the field were experiencing. I've talked to hardened MPD officers that have been through you know, terrible street shootings, things like that. They told me they, they were very concerned they weren't going to make it home alive that day.
1: Yeah, that's very clear if you listen to some of the radio chatter. I mean, there's, there's real terror in people's voices mm-hmm. as, as they're talking about what, what they experienced. One thing I would like to turn to is the issue of the National Guard. Um, This is probably one of the most hotly debated issues. Um, And the way I see it, there are are two questions at play here. One, uh, why wasn't the Guard ready and at the Capitol already ahead of January 6th? And then two, why did it take the Guard so long to respond? Um, You've done a lot of research into this. You were there firsthand. What's your view on both of those questions?
0: I've done a lot of research into it. What, what's interesting is I've actually on a uh, previous occasion been asked to actually teach something that's called Defense Support for Civil Authorities by the military, uh, which is interesting. So I know my topic and I know I know how this is supposed to be handled. So I want to make sure that, that the readers understand on Capitol Hill I face certain restrictions on pulling in additional uh, resources. So Congress has passed laws that say I have to go and get approval to bring in additional resources in advance. So if we're planning an event, whether it's State of the Union, uh, January 6th, I have to go to the board and I have to go to leadership to get approval to bring in federal resources. Even in a case of an emergency, I have to go and get approval from the Capitol Police Board to bring in federal resources. So we we run into a problem with the that, that leads into your question about the National Guard. I went and asked for the National Guard in advance on January 3rd because that's what I have to do by law. No other police chief in the country... Faces the restrictions I face in bringing in federal resources, Congress has passed laws preventing me from doing it. People don't realize that. So I had to go and make the request. Uh, both Sergeant Arms, and the chief law enforcement officers for the House and Senate, um, did not approve my request. So here I come into January 6th, not having the guard. And you know, all I wanted was unarmed guard on my perimeter because I knew the perimeter, we, had, we were going to have large numbers of people. And that was, that was where I felt was my biggest vulnerability if we are going to have any issues not having people on the perimeter to prevent people from jumping the fences. So on the um, game day, we get attacked 12.53. 12.55, I make a call to MPD requesting support. 12.58, I make my first call to the uh, Sergeant Arms requesting uh, approval for the National Guard, which I have to by law. 71 minutes later, I finally get approval. Then at 2.34, I find I have to now go and fight the National Guard, fight for it with the Pentagon. So I had to get on a call with the Pentagon and plea repeatedly for the uh, support of the National Guard, only to find, unbeknownst, because people, people have to realize that when the police department runs um, uh, out of resources and we're overwhelmed, who do, who do, when we dial 911, who do we call? We call the Department of Defense. We call the National Guard. They're our backstop in, in getting help. So I put out that call only to find out there was delay after delay after delay. What I hadn't realized is just two days earlier the Secretary of Defense had put out this memo restricting the resources that my men and women so greatly needed on January, January 6th for an attack that I now believe they, they knew was coming because they had, they had talked about it. They had talked about it in meetings. They were so concerned. They were talking about locking down the city. Yet he goes and puts these restrictions on the resources I needed and never tells anybody, never tells the very people that are going to call 911. So at 2.34, I'm pleading for their assistance and have to wait until 5.44 p.m., for them to arrive on the scene. When, think about the absurdity. They're within two miles of the Capitol, over 150 of them with all their riot gear, and they won't even move to help my men and women. I, I respect the military. I come from a military family. The, uh, the people in the field, those that are willing to tell the truth, I highly respect. The people that decided not to send them to help my men and women that we needed support badly, I, I, I can't even question why, I can't even understand why they didn't uh, send the help I needed.
1: Yeah, in, in a recent transcript, uh, General Walker uh, said that he was ready to break orders and send the, the, the troops down to the Capitol and resign the next day. That's how bad it was. Um, why do you think they put those restrictions on, on the Guard?
0: What's, what's interesting is they've come out, and in their, in, in their testimony, I know you've covered this uh, very clear and closely, they've said they did it because of the protest in, in 2020, what happened up by the White House. If that's the case, why not put them out right after that? Why Why not make them a permanent change? This is how we're going to change how we do defense support for civil authorities. They didn't. They put them in place for two specific days, January 5th and 6th, the very days that they expected violence to occur in the city. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm perplexed at why they would do that. And not only that, it left one recourse. It left the QRF, the Quick Reactionary Force. And then the very next day, the the Secretary of the Army, McCarthy, restricted the um, uh, General uh, Walker's use of that. I, I, I'm dumbfounded that... One, they restricted it, but two, they had to be watching the same TV screens I was watching, the same TV screens the nation was watching of the Capitol being attacked. We had shots fired in the Capitol, and I was on the phone screaming, begging for assistance, and they wouldn't send anybody, and they had to be seeing it. So, I, I, I you know, I'm perplexed. I, I talk about it in the book about why I feel there, may, there very well could be a hesitation um, for it, uh, but I'm still perplexed at why a military officer would, would prevent life and, support, life and death support, um, from coming to the 8-1 officers. Mm-hmm.
1: One thing the January 6th committee uh, said in their report is that there was a fear among some of the top brass at the military that Donald Trump wanted to use the Guard to protect him, him and his supporters as they marched to the Capitol, not to protect the Capitol, and they felt it would be misused. Um, do you agree with that conclusion?
0: I, I write about uh, a form of that. I think there was a lot of people within the president's cabinet that believe that he may invoke the Insurrection Act. Um, and I tie that into the concern about how intelligence was handled. I, I firmly believe the intelligence community handled intelligence on January 6th different than they have in, in, in previous events. But I, I do believe there was a concern for him possibly activating um, martial law uh, and activating the military in, in support of, of his concerns. Uh, so I think that had played a role in the reluctance to put the military anywhere near the capitol.
1: But there was also, I think, a reluctance on the other side. I think you get to this a little in the book about when you were denied by the um, sergeant-at-arms to, to call for the guard. And you write that he was very um, aware of the politics on the Hill and of members' concerns, especially the Speaker's office, mm-hmm. about the optics of having uh, you know, this military presence there. To talk a little about,
0: about absolutely. That. I think you know when I first went to Mr. Irving, and I write uh, about exactly the time. I think it was nine twenty-four on Sunday morning, and people are like, "Why would you see him on Sunday morning?" It was the very first day of the one hundred seventeenth Congress, I think it was, when they uh, swear him in. Um, but I felt it was such an important ask that I go see him in person. Um, so I went and I asked him. And his first concern was, "Ooh, the optics." when he says the term optics, and it's interesting because the military uses the term optics a lot. It's used way too much on the Hill, and I talk about how it affected me a couple of times in the book, but his first concern was for optics, and it was clear that that concern was from the problems we had over 2020, the protests we had by the White House, and I talk about the protests and the impact that had on security, but you know, Speaker Pelosi at one point came out and referenced um, federal, federal troops on, on city streets as stormtroopers, uh, the term, and I believe that Uh, Mr. Irving's concern for optics was in relation to Speaker Pelosi's concern for the look
1: of stormtroopers being on Capitol grounds. Mm -hmm. You write in the, um, or you've said that you believe information has been deliberately suppressed. Which information are you referring to? Uh,
0: Again, I think the intelligence community treated this information, the the January 6th, differently. I've I've handled numerous events in Washington, D.C., states of the union, inaugurations, IMF World Bank's, and think about all the previous times we've had events with far lesser threat streams. Now, after January 6th, some of the threats that I've seen, and I referenced many of them in there, and only 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 partial, was extremely concerning. I mean, there was people st- clearly calling for storming the Capitol, you know, killing, you know, members of uh, politicians. And to see how it was watered down, I didn't, you know, in the past, if the FBI felt they were seeing um, derogatory uh, comments being made, you know, significant ones online, they would have, you know, pulled the conference call together of all the local police chiefs and say, "Hey, we're seeing this," and have the analysts talk about it, or work with DHS to point out a joint and put out a joint intelligence bulletin. Um, that didn't happen. They didn't call an executive meeting. DHS didn't put out a bulletin. DHS didn't even put out a warning. And think about it: DHS is formed after 9/11, to, you know, to connect the dots to make sure we never miss a threat to our to our national security like we did in 9/11. And here we are. You know, there was lessons learned in 9/11 that applied to January 6. And my concern is there's going to be lessons learned in January 6th that I can apply sometime in the future if we don't learn a lesson. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what I feel. I feel it was watered down. And whether it was purposely watered down so the president wouldn't say, hey, this is going to be bad. I'm going to go ahead and um, implement martial law. I I, I don't know. I can only suspect, you know, these people had to be seeing, you know, all the the red alarms going off everywhere. Why they didn't put
1: in paper, I don't know. Yeah, in retrospect, it looks so clear when you look at all the evidence, uh, all the messages and threats and all mm-hmm. these message boards and, and warnings that were going out, and the fact that it appears people missed it. But you say you didn't miss it, that you were already concerned and you were calling for the guard sometime before, before Okay, so,
0: so the intelligence I had indicated that this was going to be very similar to the two previous magas. I didn't have intelligence saying we we're going to get an attack. Yeah. You've got to understand, I've, I've done a lot of events in Washington, D.C., i Got experience. I've done training. Um, I knew we were going to have a large number of people coming down to the Capitol. And when they say the 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 target of the protesters is is Congress, you know, you're you're a congressional reporter. Every protest we have that comes down to the Capitol, why are they protesting? To get to Congress? To they're all all their targets is, is Congress. So you know, I didn't take that as because it didn't indicate their violent you know target is Congress. It said their target is Congress. Of course, they're protesting down there. So. My big concern was the the perimeter. We had a large perimeter around the Capitol building. Unlike the previous two MAGA events, um, where we didn't have Congress in session, we had Congress in session this time, and that takes a lot of my staffing. There's significant staffing that goes into a joint session of Congress, especially when you have the Vice President there. So I knew I'd lost some of those resources to go inside the building and handle the uh, security inside. Um, so it left my perimeter a little more vulnerable. So that's why I went. It wasn't because I knew there was going to be an attack, or I suspected you know that, uh, that there was what happened on January 6th was going to happen. It was from my training and my experience that said, you know, probably the area of the biggest concern is going to be the perimeter. I'd like more, more, and I was looking for unarmed National Guard just to stay on the perimeter, just make sure
1: people didn't jump the, uh, the metal uh, perimeter uh, barricades. Mm-hmm. One thing a couple uh, law enforcement analysts have told me, and I want to know if you agree with this, is that uh, law enforcement was prepared for a small attack from, say, the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers, some of the, these extremist groups they had heard about, but they weren't prepared for was riling up of hundreds and hundreds of Trump supporters to join this assault on the Capitol. Uh, do you agree with that analysis? To,
0: to a certain extent. When you say small attacks, I think small confrontations. We mm. expected small confrontations. I had you know, my maximum amount of CDU personnel that I could um, activate. I had all the resources I had. I had less than lethal. I had people that were supposed to be in the hard gear, the turtle gear. So we were ready for that. Um, no, I did not anticipate a large group being riled up uh, like they were on, on January 6th, being fired up and sent down to the Capitol uh, during such a crucial time. I think, like I said um, in the book, there was groups of people that I feel were coordinated, and I think those small groups activated a mob mentality, which is extremely dangerous, um, that affected that that attack. So no, I don't think anyone
1: anticipated uh, the type of attack we saw. Um, in the book you say uh, Nancy Pelosi lied about you. Um, and you talk about what she said about you on TV and you watching it at home. Uh, walk us through that scene. What was the lie, and why do you think she told it about you?
0: Why I don't why I don't know. Um, so the lie is, you know, and I, I write about it in, in the book about how I found out that she was getting ready to go on national TV and call for my resignation, um, and that was that was a tough, tough time. Uh, but anyway, so going in and watching it, you know, at first as she was holding the press conference. It seemed like she was delaying it. Then she began talking about doing an after-action report, and I was thinking, that's exactly what I'd do. Because I had no intention of resigning. I, you know, a, a press reporter had reached out shortly before that and said, are you going to resign? I said, absolutely not. I'm going to see this through because I want to find out what happened. I want to find out why things went so badly wrong. Um, but then she goes on TV, and she talks about doing an after-action report. I think, okay, that's smart. And then she turns, and uh, after another question about, you know, it was this a security failure, she says she's calling for my resignation. And then she says, besides, he hasn't even called us since this occurred. I talked to her three times. I talked to her three times about very critical information, the first one being with the vice president um, on his phone, you know, and I briefed her. And then she called me shortly after that, and then uh, there was another call to uh, leadership to brief them. To have her go on and paint me as a callous, disrespectful person, Um, again, she you know, put me in the same same boat as everyone else is saying, oh, cops are, are racist, complicit, they're involved. Uh, I felt that was that that wasn't. I didn't deserve that, and and I felt the American people uh, needed to know the truth. Uh, why she did it, I have no idea.
1: Do you think you were made into a scapegoat?
0: Um, security on Capitol Hill is very uh, interesting. As the chief of police, you always know uh, that you're one one bad event away from uh, going out the door. Uh, I just wish she had taken more uh, cons- consideration about what really happened and what what attempts I did try to make uh, to protect her and the members of Congress uh, before calling my resignation, calling for my resignation.
1: You you mentioned in the book that uh, you had personal interactions with Mike Pence, and you know what Mike Pence was thinking in that moment. Can you talk a little bit about those uh, interactions? So I had a a couple of
0: phone calls um, with Vice President Pence. Um, A couple of interesting things about him. We're in the middle, and when he he first called, it was 3.30ish, 3.32, I believe. When he first got a call and I had to step out of the command center to take the call because um, they had transferred the call into an outer office, when I took it, his first concern was, how are you doing? How are you and your officers doing? I was I was taken back by that. But anyway, he had made it clear he was not leaving. He was staying at the Capitol. He wanted to see this um, certification of the vote through, uh, but he wanted me to come over as soon as possible to brief him, and I, I, I couldn't leave at that point. And I really felt bad You know, it's the vice president of the United States, but, you know, I, I'm trying to help my men and women right now. So... Uh, pushed it off, he called back again, had to push it off a second time, and then he called back, and finally that's when things started, the tide started to turn after 5 o'clock, and I could go over and brief him. Uh, when I went over and talked to him again, he was very concerned. He was concerned about what the officers were going through. He was concerned about seeing this through. He was concerned about the position. You could tell he was concerned about the position he was put in. Um, it was uh, it was tough, but I could
1: I I could, I could see he definitely wanted to just finish this uh, certification. Yeah, the, the mob got within 40 steps of Mike Pence. Um, mm-hmm. You you uh, wrote in the book that you often during big events or uh, different events would join uh, the the officers in the field. Mm-hmm. You'd like to be there in the field, but you viewed that day that your role, the most important thing you could do, was try to get them help. Can you talk a little about those efforts trying to get more troops, more other agencies to the Capitol? Absolutely, to help, to help. <clears throat> your officers.
0: Um, and, and you're right. I think any police leader will tell you it's important for your your, your troops to see you. And that was something I always talked to um, uh, fellow officials um, to get out there in the field and see it as much as possible. But once that that hit, and you'll read the book. Uh, I talk in the book how I actually reached out to MPD ahead of time because I've worked at MPD. I've, I've, I've written their, their events manuals many times. I've deployed their civil disturbance universe, uh, personnel many times, so I know how they do it. Luckily, I'd called ahead of time and asked them, is there a way, I spoke with Assistant Chief Carroll. can they put some resources on Constitution Avenue? Thank God he did, um, <clears throat> because I think without those resources, they would have breached the Capitol much quicker. So um, at 1253, once the uh, attack began, um, my first call was to Jeff Carroll at 1255, uh, Mike Stinger at uh, 1258, and then after that, it was a series of calls, uh, dozens of calls to my, my partners in law enforcement, whether it's uh, to- um Tom Sullivan at Secret Service, uh, uh, Airport Authority, uh, the various different agencies, Park Police. I was calling everybody. I direct lines, uh, and this is where relationships matter. Every single one of them was sending the cavalry. Uh, Gary Settles with Virginia State Police. Number of calls were going out, and people were sending resources my way. And again, people need to realize by law I cannot call in federal resources without the approval of the of the Capitol Police Board, uh, even during emergency, and they still hadn't given me that approval. Um, but I was calling in everybody I could. You know, I even reached out to FBI, ATF, um, Secret Service, and they were sending resources because my men and women needed whatever help they could get. And as the chief, I'm the only one that can call outside resources um, into uh, to support them. So that, that, was, that was what I was trying to do as quick as possible, but it was dozens of calls. Re- one after another, I activated mutual aid through uh, Metro- Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments. Uh, pulling in every bit of assistance I can get. It was the men and women in law enforcement
1: that turned the tide and got the Capitol back. Yeah, absolutely. I was there at the Capitol that day. Um, I remember uh, M- MPD showing up, and I remember Capitol Police and MPD clearing the Capitol, forcing the rioters back uh, before a single uh, person from the National Guard arrived. And, uh, you know, I think within that time, you know, you had cops dragged down steps, beaten with flagpoles, and so valuable hours went by where it was this, the police who were who were clearing the capital. Right.
0: And those valuable hours are what concerns me the most because if we had gotten the resources, if we had gotten resources from National Guard sooner, if the Capitol Police Board had made a decision quicker and we didn't have these restrictions and the, the National Guard responded like they're supposed to, according to their own directives and emergency requests, we probably could have gotten control of that much quicker. Uh, and and I share that with you because I love the men and women of the police department, of the Capitol Police. Uh, and to see what they went through that day is devastating.
1: It is. Um, you say that no one involved in the plotting or planning of January 6th has been punished. Um, who do you think should be should be charged, should be held accountable beyond just the, the rioters who went in the building.
0: Well, you've got a, a number of rioters that are being charged. You have a number of the uh, the groups that are now uh, getting conspiracy, uh, sedition conspiracy uh, um, charges, uh, things like that. You know, anyone that was involved in, you know, a, an outright plan uh, to attack it, whether it's, you know, people that um, are associated with the administration, things like that, um, uh, I think are, are culpable uh, in this. You know, I look at, you know, like President Trump that day, um, you know, he, he's always touted as the law enforcement uh, president, and I think a lot of law enforcement um, has supported him. Uh, but I find it concerning. You know, he, he pulls the group together uh, on the day we're having the certification, goes out there and gives a very inflammatory speech. He had a number of people that are given inflammatory uh, speeches, uh, and then sends them up to the Capitol, and he's the commander-in-chief. And then goes back in the White House and can watch this while we're under attack and doesn't send resources our way. Uh, or even calls you know, to offer resources, I, I, I find concerning um, to have to wait as long as we did before he finally puts out a message saying, "You know, go home. We love you. Go in peace." Um, I find that I find that concerning. Um, I just I, I feel there's a lot uh, a lot of people that probably have some involvement.
1: Do you think that was a dereliction of duty?
0: Um, I think uh, when you when you think of his role as the president and the respect that everyone should have for that office, um, I, I don't think he... One, I don't think he tried to de-escalate the situation, and I don't think um, what he did was in the level
1: of what should have been done for the President of the United States. If President Trump wasn't making calls to address security, uh, who was in charge? Who was in charge? Of of getting of getting resources to the Capitol. I know I Vice President Pence was making calls. Mm-hmm. Um, what... In, f- from your perspective that day, who did you think was actually doing things within the federal government to get you help? So as far as any law enforcement assistance within the federal
0: government, um, I was making a lot of those calls. I was talking with Dave Bowditch with the uh, FBI. I was talking with Sean Benedict with ATF. Uh, I was talking with Tom Sullivan with Secret Service. So the federal resources, as far as law enforcement, we are making those communications. The military is the big question. And the military, when you got to look at it, you know, again, you know, I have the most restrictions of any chief as far as calling the military of any chief across the country. In Washington, D.C., military is activated through the president, um, the, uh, governors in all the other states, but the president in Washington, D.C., now he, had, he has delegated that authority to the secretary of the defense, who delegated the secretary of Army. Now, who in that, you know, circle was, was preventing the resources from coming to me, because allegedly they're all involved, and, you know, the secretary of defense wrote this letter, secretary of Army restricted the QRF. They all seem to have their hands somehow in the pie that just created this, I can think of a couple key words, but created this just delay in getting resources uh, to us. I don't know who one person, you know, again, I'm not here. I don't want to point, you know, individual fingers at who may be at fault because we need to correct this in the future. Um, It just was uh, a disaster
1: about how how it played out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've read different accounts from different people, but the same meeting or people are telling completely different versions of events, one person said one thing, the other person says I didn't say it. Somebody says I was in the room, somebody says I wasn't. It's um, and you can attribute some of that to the fog of war. But w- what what needs to be changed to have a more streamlined process to get the guard or get resources during a during an emergency?
0: Yeah, some of those uh, some of those meetings I've heard some of the some of the same, and um, I think it was um, maybe General McConville that had talked about. The, uh, the 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 fog of friction, and that the Pentagon isn't a tactical uh, command command center. I think it was McConville that said that. The big issue there is they had taken it over as as a tactical command center. Their their directives says specifically General Walker should have had the authority immediately to re- uh, send his National Guard to me, according to DOD directives, uh, and I reference them in there, and people can look them up online. They took that authority away from them. We want to get back to it. Give the authority back. They should have just followed their directives. They should have followed their rules. Uh, instead, they everyone wanted to get their hands hands in the pot and have some uh, uh, involvement. Well, with that
1: comes responsibility. So, now you say in the book you've met with six hour first. You met with six hours with the four six hours with the January sixth committee yes, during sir. their investigation. I've yet to see that full transcript myself. I've read a lot of the transcripts. Um, but you also said that you felt the, that the, the questions from the investigators, they seem to have their minds made up already. Mm-hmm. Can you walk, the, walk us through that interview process for you and what you felt? Well, we'll just go ahead and walk us through that interview process.
0: Absolutely. Um, so they originally re- re- uh, requested a three-hour uh, interview with me. It uh, showed up. We had gotten into it. We went through the three hours fairly, fairly quickly. At that point, they said they'd like a little bit more time. I doubled it, uh, it probably in excess of, of six hours once it was all said and done. Uh, but it was clear they, they weren't focusing on the intelligence issues we had. They, they you know, were, were focusing on more of, eh, you know, you didn't push hard enough for the National Guard. You didn't, you know, uh, it was your fault about the intelligence. Uh, it was clear that they, I, I got the distinct impression with the line of questions that they're answering, uh, they're asking, I'm sorry, the line of questions that they're asking that they weren't really looking for the truth. They maybe had already had a narrative that they wanted to uh, get to. Uh, and they weren't asking the hard questions that need to be asked uh, to get to the actual truth to prevent this from happening again who do you th- do you think they were protecting anyone? Um, i th- I think they wanted to minimize any leadership uh, role in security on the hill. Mm-hmm. I got that distinct
1: impression. Mm-hmm. Do you have any evidence that um, uh, when you the the call for the guard was rejected that that was due directly to a certain politician such as Nancy Pelosi?
0: Um, so you're talking about like on the, on during the, uh, the event? Correct. I think um, I, I've always suspected, I'm trying to think of some stuff, but I think in the, one of the recent transcripts or I believe it, maybe there's a January 6th committee where Paul Irving says that he realized he didn't have to request the approval from the uh, speaker uh, or leadership to authorize me to bring in the National Guard, but he wanted to make sure that they were aware. So it's clear there was a delay to at least make sure they're they're aware. And you got to understand, um, you know, he, he's, he's very politically astute. He knows he's been able to, you know, uh, make it through Republicans, Democrats, back and forth. Um, and he does it by keeping this, his leadership happy. Um, and he knows that if he had brought in the National Guard without telling him, I, I suspect he felt that he would have gotten lambasted. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe that's in the January 6th that that came out where he said he waited and made sure that they were aware before he authorized them to come in. Right. Did, um, uh, do you believe that you deserve any blame? Um, so I write about it in, in the book. Like, like I said, this is a fact-based book. If um, I deserve a black eye, I get a black eye. And I get a black eye on a, on, on a couple of things. Um, there's things I wish I had done better, things I wished I had um, uh, taken care of ahead of time. You know, the the operations plan for inside, we had a plan for outside, we had a plan for the protests. There should have been a plan for inside that, you know, I should have made sure that that was done. Um, there's a number of things that I wish uh, I had done better um, that I talk about in the book. So this isn't just uh, one-sided that I'm pointing fingers at everybody else in the true Washington D.C. fashion you always see. <laughs> right, right. Um, fingers that need to be pointed at me, I'm happy to point at me, uh, and you know whatever it is that needs to be corrected, I just don't want to see this happen again.
1: What specifically could you have done better?
0: Um, like I said, you know I just you know hindsight is always tough because you always are hardest on yourself. Uh, I wish I pushed on January 3rd for the guard. Uh, the guard more, you know, based on my experience, and, and I told them why I wanted the perimeter. Um, but that's just that's just how it is. During the attack, you know, afterwards I've heard about the officers concerned about, you know, no one was was addressing us on the radio. Uh, I'm in the command center now. You know, I'm making phone call after phone call after phone call. That doesn't excuse me from the fact that you know I've been through many critical incidents. I've handled barricades. I've handled active shooters. I should have known that there's probably going to be a breakdown in communications and help mentor my two assistant chiefs who were all part of the critical incident management team to help manage these events, but I should have helped them because everyone, I think, was in a state of shock of what they were seeing. I should have helped and made sure that the incidents were being managed better, that officers were getting communications in the field uh, better, and that's the thing that I think bothers me the most because I care about the officers so much, just to think that they were calling out for help and no one was there to help them.
1: Yeah, that's, that was one striking uh, bit of evidence was the uh, the call that says, is there a plan and there's there's no response yeah
0: yeah that the same here I read that um, and I really do wish that I had I had been you know more involved in that
1: mm-hmm. and I fought myself for that mm-hmm. uh, going forward how could how could a police force address such a situation with that's that's so chaotic that's that's devolving in front of everyone
0: um, you know, we, we have policies and, and procedures in place that literally are supposed to talk about how the command center transitions into area command to manage this type of event. Um, and you, you exercise those to a certain extent. Nobody expected what happened that day. No one expected thousands of people to attack the Capitol uh, and breach the Capitol building. So I think, you know, just the sense of shock that that happened, I think you you got to get in and do more, do more exercises on that uh, and just make sure that everyone really understands their role Uh, And you know, if if things had gone the way they were supposed to, with requesting the National Guard, and um, I hadn't been distracted so much with that, you know, probably would have gone, you know, been able to focus things a little bit more. But I think just planning uh, your and exercising your uh, directives probably
1: going to do better. Mm -hmm. Um, I've interviewed a lot of Capitol Hill police officers. I did a long piece last year about all the injuries and the trauma so many faced. Uh, and one thing that struck me was some of the officers I spoke with, um, ac- one of them actually teared up when talking about you, that you had been a mentor to her and that the force was in a dark place after January 6th and that your, uh, uh resignation, um, had made her feel even worse when you were forced to resign. Um, what's, your, what's your reaction to hearing that? Um, I'm, I'm touched by that, um. I do, I do believe that I
0: have a very good relationship with my workforce. Uh, I, I think before we started the interview, I told you I've even talked to some of them today, which is true. I have. Uh, you know, it's, it was devastating to see what they went through. I had worked really, really hard to develop a certain rapport with my officers. Uh, it's, it's unique. It's not like any other police department out there. Um, and to have them really uh, uh, enjoy what they do. Uh, to stay as vigilant as they can that's all, all key to my job as a as an official and to be developing a plan for moving the department forward so I felt it was key for me to have that type of relationship with my officers because you know the esprit de corps you know if they're excited about their job and they're excited about their leadership they're going to do a better job um, but I think right at the height of, of the relationship I'd built in that 18 months as, as chief to have you know have that happen I've I heard that sentiment, sentiment from many uh, many officers so I feel bad for them um, I want to see him do better. I want to see him get better uh, the you know Tom manger, the chief there uh, he's doing the best job he can It's a
1: it's a tough job that he's in. Uh, I wish him luck uh, How do you assess the current state of the capitol police? I mean after January sixth, so many people resigned, so many people had uh, almost like a depression was over the force after after what had happened um,
0: I think there's still. Probably a little bit of that, that shock, and, and you you call it depression. Um, uh, many are still demoralized uh, by it. You still have many people thinking about leaving. You have what, what what concerns me is before it used to be, hey, I'm gonna do 25, I'm gonna do 30. Now officers tell me I'm 20 out. As soon as I get my 20, and I can go, I'm I'm out of here. Um, it's going to take time uh, to come around. There needs to be a, you know a, a real clear roadmap of of you know developing. Uh, the officers developing their uh, personal uh, like for the for the job uh, and just a plan moving forward. You know, when I came in as assistant chief, my first goal was to try and get equipment and budgets always a problem. Uh, and I fought and I fought and I fought. And it wasn't until in, as you read the book, September of 2020 that I was able to get money just to get everybody a helmet. Um, now, look at them. You know, they they're flush with money. They've gotten almost a, a two hundred fifty million dollar a year increase. Um, money will help. But the officers are feeling overworked,
1: underappreciated, mm-hmm. um, and undersupported. Yeah, that's uh, one. in some of the inspector general reports, one of the, some of the findings that I found most striking were the officers who really wanted to get their riot gear and couldn't get it on. And so they were left sort of unprotected as this mob's beating them. And there's one scene where a bunch of the riot gear is on a bus and the bus is locked. Uh, w- what did you think reading that? Um, terrible because
0: after the, after the first two MAGA events, like any police department would, we've done it after action, after action said one, you got to have the people dressed out earlier. You got to have their gear near them, gear. you wanted water near them, things like that. All things that we had already identified. And to now hear during this event that they didn't have their gear on, they weren't actually where they were supposed to be at the, at the time we got hit, um, and that they had their gear separated from, I find, it is devastating. That's that's just a, a, failure, a failure on our part uh, as leaders to not make sure that they had their their stuff with them. I mean, we had after actions. We had, you know, an official in charge of of CDU that should have made sure everyone had their had their gear with them was ready, prepared to go. Uh, and I think it's I contribute that to a lack of experience. You know, unlike Metropolitan Police, they're out there a lot doing you know civil disturbance. Uh, Capitol Police we we do it occasionally and for the most part it's oftentimes very compliant you know over 2020 we had a number of the um uh, black lives matter protests up on the hill no use of force no chemical munitions uh, deployed um so it's just uh, i think a different
1: level of experience
0: and i'll contribute that to probably lack of experience on some parts
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i mean you think of the typical protest on capitol hill it's uh, some people who speak up in a in a meeting and have to be escorted out, or some people holding signs in front of the grass. It was it's nothing right. like like we saw in January 6th. Right, 6. a
0: lot of, uh, very compliant. Usually it's a coordinated arrest ahead of time, things like that. Um, but, you know, needless to say, they, they can handle non-compliant. We just didn't expect
1: that level of, of attack. Uh, I want to ask you, I know you don't want to point fingers, but who do you blame for January 6th? Um,
0: that's, a, that's, that's a very good question, because as I look at it, and as we talked a little bit, you know, I I find fault in the fact that, you know, the, the, the president brought a group down and, and continued, you know, you know I'm waiting for all the, the, the cracking of evidence on the, um, uh, I'm trying to think, they called it release the cracking of evidence that they had on the stolen election. He's bringing down these people, he's firing them up, and he's sending them up to the Capitol uh, and doesn't provide any support. So I find fault there. But I look at how America is right now. And I've never seen a more divided country in my life. Everything, everything has to be based on politics, on lines of, you know, whether you're Republican, the Democrat. Um, and you find that from school boards to communities to councils. And I look back at that, and I, I fault all politicians for that. Because whether it's, you know, tearing up the, 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 the uh, president's uh, State of the Union speech or Trump going on a Twitter rant, or the vice president saying, hey, we got to have these uh, protests, these violent protests that are going to continue, and they'll continue after the election. we got to realize words matter. And people are looking to politicians to try and begin to heal America, and we're not in a good place right now. So I think on the day of, I think the president riled up a group and, and sent them up to the uh, Capitol, and you know, I wish he hadn't done that. Uh, but when I look at a bigger picture, I think, I think we had got a lot, lot
1: bigger involvement. Right, we have uh, many people say that that was sort of the culmination uh, they've been building, a, a, a sort of a tinderbox that all it needed was a match to to be lit to 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 set people off. Um, even just this week, listening to members of Congress with their going away speeches, or last week, they were almost all of them were saying we need to change this place. We need to stop being at each other's throats, encouraging people to our followers to hate each other. Um, how how how, and, and you write in the book about the rising threats that preceded January sixth and continue to this day. What's the environment like now as a as a as a police chief or a former police chief trying to keep people safe in this environment?
0: Um, I think it's 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 tough across the country. I mean, you're seeing uh, the rhetoric and it's it's violent rhetoric on both sides increasing. It's it's nice to hear that they're talking about it. It takes one or two to start that if they can start reaching across the aisle like, you know, true statesmen used to do, um, I think it will begin to set a different tone for the country. Uh, And that's what I think we we really need to do. We're not seeing that right now. And people are
1: going to mimic their political leaders. Be a leader. You know, if you really mean it, make it happen. Uh, I wanted to uh, ask you what lessons can we learn uh, from January 6th as we sort of uh, come to an end here. Uh, There's probably different categories uh, of lessons to learn. Uh, why don't we start with the law enforcement failures? W- what lessons can be learned in that specific category uh, to prevent something uh, like January 6th from happening again?
0: So I, I go back to when we kind of talked about, and when, I, when I, you say law enforcement, I want to include the intelligence community in that because they, they play a big role on how we respond. Because people need to realize, law enforcement agencies plan based on the intelligence and information they have. You have uh, inaccurate, incomplete intelligence your plan is going to be inaccurate and incomplete. Um, so I think first and foremost, everyone thought we learned our lesson after 9 /11. You know um, We have lessons you that know, uh, from 9/ 11 that impacted us on January 6 with the sharing of intelligence. My concern is we're going to have lessons learned on January 6 that are going to happen at, that are going to affect a future date if we don't do something about it and change. So I think first and foremost, making sure that everyone's clear on the intelligence. Uh, sharing the necessary intelligence, I think, is, is a critical, critical role. Um, law enforcement right now is very, is, is, is walking on, on thin ice, or as they would say, they, they feel like they're walking on rice paper because they don't feel like they have support um, from their, their city council, their various elected officials, uh, you know, members of the community. When you've got, you've got a small group that is probably causing a lot of problems for, for law enforcement, they're out there every day. Uh, regardless of your political position, regardless of race, gender, religious, orient- sexual orientation, answering those calls for service. We need to support them, make them feel that what they're doing is a valued part of the community, because it is, you know, a community, uh, a society without law and order is, you know, a lawless society. Um, so I think we need to support them a little bit more. Uh, and I think if people just start, you know, abiding by the rule of the law and, and following their own directives, uh, I think we'll we'll be in a much better place.
1: And then what, what lesson can our uh, political leaders learn?
0: Uh, I'd say probably one of the most important lessons, that one, words matter. Um, when, you, you, when you say stuff, watch out for the rhetoric because people can take that um, and turn it into something that you didn't expect. So so words matter. Uh, and also, if you're going to put people in, in leadership positions, whether it's to be a chief of police uh, or, you know, or chief of uh, on Capitol Police or, you know, wh- whatever leadership position is, give them the authority to do their job, trust them, um, and don't have to hold purse strings, you know, hold things over their heads. I know they, they recently passed a legislation that gave the, the chief of Capitol Police the authority in, in an emergency situation like what I faced on January 6th to go direct to the um, National Guard to request federal resources. And I applaud them for passing that. It's the uh, Capitol Police Emerge- Emergency Amendment Act of 2021. There's a couple important things. One, he can only do it in an emergency. So like when on January 3rd, when I went and requested it, I don't believe it affects pre-planning. And two, they made it revocable. So that should tell you something. That leadership, they trust them to a certain point. They're 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 ready to make it revocable and take that, that um,
1: authority away from them when they feel it's appropriate. Do you feel the Capitol needs more hardening, like a permanent fence or... Uh, this quick reaction force uh some people are talking about
0: yeah, um, I, I I hate to say it, the the quick reaction force, I think that's that 's a large sum of money to try and support that for a little benefit. I think again it all goes back to intelligence. This is something that we could have clearly seen with good intelligence, so that would affect that um, offense i think I think physical hardening, which the architect of the capital has testified uh, to you, you just like me, you face budget constraints. I think that's your first and foremost, more physical hardening, better intelligence, um, offense you know it is the people 's house um, you know we'll see uh, see there's a lot of officers that support offense um, I, I just feel bad that our society may be you know
1: pushing us in that in that position in that direction and then uh, last question, and what lesson can we as a society as a country learn from January 6, including the social media companies and people who use social media and follow politics. Um, don't be so quick to anger.
0: Um, the one thing I do talk about in my book, and I think it's one of the headings in my book, um, don't let your concerns for politicians and concerns for, you know, what's happening in your government force you into violence. Let it force you into action. You know, take a role in your in your uh, political government. Take a role in who your leaders are, um, because if you don't, you're going to be led by fools. So that's your first and foremost, rather than turning to violence uh, or any, anything like that, whether it's the protests at the White House or January 6th, um, if you feel that strongly
1: about it, get involved. Chief Sun, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it, sir. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and bestselling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.